Sterling Fox with you on a Sunday morning at CKNW, and uh, we're just looking at some of the figures. Uh, $17.35 billion. This is the latest number the Government of Canada provided about the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, which has been updated, and of course these numbers are changing all the time. And the government rolled out billions of dollars in new financial help late last week, targeting both hard-hit sectors of the economy, acknowledging at the same time that some companies need more support and others are slipping through the safety net of emergency aid meant to help them through this COVID-19 pandemic. Here to talk about this and the relief efforts and to whom uh, the money is being sent and how much impact it is having uh, is from the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, Executive Vice President and Chief Strategic Officer, Laura Jones. Ms. Jones, Laura, welcome to the program and good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure, Laura. Uh, I'm looking at some of the notes on your website of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business and uh, some some stats, and I'll get you to go through some of these numbers, but let's start with the average cost of COVID-19 on small business so far is well in excess of $200,000, Laura. That's quite amazing. Yeah, it is. It is quite amazing. I mean, we know this has been absolutely devastating for Main Street. And I think one of the, you know, in addition to just the dollar figure on the cost, um, one of the things that really uh, struck me from our last survey, we've been doing a survey every Friday night, um, first of all, just by way of context for mm-hmm. the listeners, um, for small business owners. And um, then we release the, the results uh, usually on Tuesday, but we get them into policymakers across Canada on, on Monday so that they have them very quickly. And we're able to do that because we're getting between ten and 13,000 responses over the weekend um, to our survey. So it shows you just how engaged um, small business owners are and how anxious they are um, to have a voice on what's happening and how, how the policies are being designed and, and to help people understand just how hard Main Street um, has been. But one of the results on the last survey we asked was we said if, if current restrictions go on until the end of May, mm-hmm. how confident are you um, that your business will, will survive that? And only half of businesses said that if current restrictions um, go to the end of May, they're confident that they will survive. The rest either aren't sure or saying, no, we won't survive if current restrictions go to the end of May. And overall, about 6% are saying we're not going to survive this if, if this um, stays in, in, in place. But that goes up to as high as 1 in 10 when you're looking at um, the hospitality uh, sector. Yes. So, you know, when you're looking at restaurants and hotels and some of the businesses that have been really hard hit by this, um, your hairdressers, your nail salons are also in that category. Sure. Um, you know, it's this is really, really... Um, This is really, really challenging. Laura, you were talking about how quickly you're able to turn this very fresh information around and deliver it to policymakers on Monday. We saw some adjustments to the federal government's relief package towards the end of last week. Could that or could some of those adjustments have been based on the information you provided to them a few days earlier? Oh, sure. I think the governments across Canada are, are actually doing a, a good job of, of really um, trying to listen and, and make changes to the programs in real time. Sure. And, um, you know, that's obviously very challenging. I know um, and many folks in government are, are working very long hours. And, you know, for business owners, it's not coming fast enough, of course, but that doesn't mean to say that they aren't working very hard. And one of the changes that we saw was to the Canada Emergency Business Account. So this is the $40,000 interest-free loan right. with $10,000 forgivable. So if you pay if you pay back that loan uh, by the end of 2022, you can keep the $10,000. And that money is available um, right away. So we are encouraging businesses who are eligible and who are hard hit to go to their bank. Um, and it's going to be more widely available through credit unions too uh, soon and, and, and get that money because that can be very helpful. But what we saw was that there 
a lot of businesses who weren't eligible for that because you have to have between $50,000 of payroll and a million dollars of payroll. So at the bottom end of that, there were a lot of businesses who weren't eligible. We were hearing from businesses who said, oh my gosh, my payroll is $49,500. I mean, can you imagine being in that situation? Mm -hmm. Um, And I desperately need this money for rent and to pay other bills. The top end for a hotel or a restaurant, a million dollars of payroll, you can easily have um, that. And it doesn't mean that you're, you know, you're swimming in cash sure. um, because the margins on those businesses are very, are very thin. So what they did was they extended that. Um, they increased the eligibility to now it's between 20000 and $1.5 million. That's right. We had been calling for no $2.5 million at the top end. But there's an example of how they are responding, and many businesses who weren't eligible now are eligible. Now, we're still working to expand that even further because we're still hearing from a lot of businesses who desperately need um, the money and who are, who are you know, falling uh, through the cracks of, of what's available. Yeah, Laura, I need to take a break, but just before we do, um, this, this $40,000 bridging package that uh, you're able to receive if you qualify, uh, $30,000 of it repayable and and if you do so on time, the other 10 is forgivable. Uh, how much, I mean, uh, clearly it's a lifesaver for a lot of small businesses, but it is only bridging money and you're only eligible to receive it once, correct? At the moment, yes. But what, one of the things we know, of course, is these programs are, are, are changing in real time. Yeah. So it's possible that were this to go along, again, prolonged by government guidelines and uh, official proclamations, then they might have to fall back and, and do another round. That's right. And, of course, there were some other announcements this week, including the Canada Emergency Commercial Rent Assistance right. uh, Program. Which, well, if we add a P on the end of it, the acronym is CCRAP, so we've been kind of <laughs> joking about that. But anyway, it's, I think that's why they didn't add a P, but there's a P on the end of all their other, a, a lot of their other programs. That's right. Um, so we don't know what's in that yet. Um, a lot of announcements before the details come out. Um, so that may be um, that may be another one of these programs where a part of a loan is forgivable. And Laura, I'm quoting from your website again. Currently, 80% of small businesses are completely or partially shut down in order to stop the spread of COVID-19. The average small business owner pays $10,000 in commercial rent, and these bills have not stopped. CFIB's research found that 90% of small business owners wanted their provincial government to offer such assistance. Now, just before taking the break, you talked about the Canada Emergency Rent Assistance Program, a federal-level program. Uh, is there uh, anything uh, coming out of Victoria, for example, here in BC, that might be a supplement to that? Well, we really don't know the details. So the federal government has been um, making announcements. They did this with the wage subsidy as well, where they, they make the announcement and then the details come a bit you know, a few days later. Okay. And so we don't really know the details. But one of the things the federal government has said is, is they do want to work with the provincial governments. And we have been um, urging the provincial governments to, you know, step up and help with some of these rent uh, costs by doing things like creating emergency accounts. So Saskatchewan actually uh, did that, they, the $5,000 one-time payment. We'd like it to be every month, but to help with costs. Um, Nova Scotia also has a fund. The other thing we've been saying the province can do is reduce property taxes by um, t- we've been saying minimum of 25% because, of course, that flows through to the leases. So um, that's very helpful uh, for business owners. And I just want to give a little shout out here to Finance Minister Carol James here in, in British Columbia, mm-hmm. who um, did make that announcement last week. And I can only imagine how difficult it would be. Can you imagine how challenging it would be to be a finance minister right now, trying to balance all of this and, and you know, um, make sure that that um, you know people who have assistance uh, have it, and and uh, but also look out for the long term interests of of the province. But I just want to say a big thank you to Carol James for that because they're the first province um, to do that, and and that's an important piece of this puzzle. Property taxes are very challenging. No for, question for about businesses. it. And Laura, also from the perspective of the finance minister, no matter what uh, you're dealing with, no matter what figures, uh, what extrapolations going forward, all the numbers are in. Red. 
red, and they're going to be red for quite some time. And that's got to be worrying uh, to to a finance minister, even uh, from parties that are uh, known to be a little uh, less concerned about the public purse. We're we're way, way over the top on our finances right across the board, aren't we? We are. And we, I mean, we've been fortunate in British Columbia where we have had, um, regardless of the party, finance ministers who are, are, are pretty committed to, have been pretty committed in normal times um, to keeping, you know, BC in the black and, yeah. and not running deficits. And um, obviously that stands you in good stead at, at a time like this. And so I think, you know, this, this really helps people understand why saving for a rainy day is important and, um, and ha- having good finances going into this. But I certainly don't envy the finance ministers across Canada and the, and the t- some of the tough decisions they're having to make and in, in balancing this out. So let's talk a little bit about some of the other feedback you're receiving. You're receiving thousands and thousands of survey results every weekend. You're polling businesses, small businesses right across Canada. And you talked a little bit about the projections that people, business owners are feeling in terms of confidence or lack thereof in their own future, the future of their enterprise. And it's it's disturbing, but it's, it's also quite real that especially in the hospitality and service industries, uh, the the confidence levels are, I think, pretty at about probably all time lows. Would you not agree? Yeah, confidence levels are at all time lows. So we do a, a survey where we look at business confidence, and it's interesting because in, in an economic um, crisis, like if you think about two thousand and eight, often it's the stock market that takes a big dive. That's but right. our confidence indicator, we say we're the non stock market economy, and that. Um, that indicator stays, you know, relatively stable and actually is a great stabilizing force. But things are really upside down um, right now. And so the stock market is, you know, in, in uh, not too bad shape relative to where people might have expected it to be. But the small business confidence index, um, our, our chief economist likes to see things in about the, you know, the 60s. He calls low 50s sluggish. We've seen historic lows. So we're down to 30 on that index. And it's just, I mean, people are just even the 20% of businesses that are open have huge revenue losses, sure. um, let alone those that are closed and many who are you know, down to zero revenue. Of course, we're encouraging customers to do what they can and you know, curbside pickup, um, stay in touch with your small business. Amazon's going to be fine out of this, but take the extra time to find a, a, a local website and order from there. Um, my daughter actually got a skateboard. Not sure how I feel about that, but she ordered it from a local business. That was how she convinced me to do it. And, um, you know, she was thrilled because she said, Mommy, it's, it, he's bringing it over today. Like, he's dropping it off um, today. I don't even have to wait for the, for the mail. So, um, you know, take that extra time. It, it's really meaningful because the other thing we're hearing is overwhelming stress. And we had that on one of our surveys as an option. What are your top worries? And of course, you know, paying bills and debt and all of these things are on the list. But we put overwhelming stress on the survey. One respondent said, can I check that three times? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, others were saying, look, I'm worried about everyone's mental health, but I'm especially worried about business owners' um, mental health. And, um, you know, one of the survey comments this time kind of says it all. It just said help. And I think right now business owners... um, well, another comment said business owners are feeling the weight of responsibility for so many people. Well, Anything that it. can help reduce, you know, reduce our worries or stress will prevent many business owners from giving up. Both financial and emotional um, supports are needed. And it's so rare. I have to tell you, it's just so rare on our surveys for businesses to be saying, we need help. We need government help. We need emotional support. I mean, business owners are the last in line typically to have their, you know, their their hands out for help. So... Um, this has really, this has really been devastating for Main Street. Well, and it, it's it's the personal stuff. You know, you, it's it's not only you, you're worried about the bank and the wolf at the door, financially speaking, but it's also your employees, people that you've been working close with, people who have helped you build your enterprise, and, and who now you you feel responsible for, even though it's not your fault. You had nothing to do with why this massive closure has taken place. They're still your people, and they still there. That burden weighs on your shoulders, no matter how uh, how not your fault it is. 
Oh, lots of stories like that. And lots of, lots of, you know, think people, people who have had, you know, this employees worked with me for 20 years, exactly, 25 yeah. years, I have to lay them off, you know, incredible stress. And then, you know, comments like my whole family works in my business. What am I going to do? Mm-hmm. Um, comments like I'm watching my life's work circle the drain. Um, it's pretty, it, for some business owners, not for all of them, but for, for many, many business owners are very, very stressed. And, and it's, um, this is, you know, this is the toughest thing we've, we've, we've seen in a long, long, long time. As an organization, what can the CFIB, the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, offer to people who are in this predicament listening to us right now? Uh, the, the resources of the website, I guess, would be an excellent place to start, right? Yeah, I had one business owner say, if I've checked that website once, I've checked it a hundred times. I mean, so we're trying to get information up in real time on our website, cfib.ca. We're also doing weekly webinars. Thousands of businesses are, are, are joining us for those weekly webinars where we're updating in real time the announcements. We've got people very connected on our team to what's going on in Ottawa. We've got our, our, we have counselors who take thousands of calls across Canada. Their call volumes are up 10 times. So Mm -hmm. we have one of our counselors on the webinar. We're also offering um, a trial membership, a free trial membership for for um, for anyone who's not a member of CFIB. I mean, we're like everybody else. We're trying to do what we can for all businesses, and so um, people who would like to find out more about that can go to our, our website. Excellent. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll direct them to cfib.ca. And Laura Jones, thank you very much for being the, with us this morning. It's a, a pleasure to have you on the program. CFIB.ca. Originally launched just a few weeks ago on March 13th, Breaking Bread was born of a need to urge public support of local independent restaurants and the food service and hospitality industry at large, as well as those whose livelihoods rely on them during this unprecedented time. At its core, Breaking Bread's mission is to build community and remind us that now more than ever, staying connected is every Every bit as important as keeping our distance. Here to talk to us more about Breaking Bread is the founder of Breaking Bread, Shelley MacArthur Everett joins us. Shelley, good morning and thanks for being with us today. Good morning, Sterling. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So this is pretty new stuff. You only founded it on March 13th. You're barely a month old. Tell us what what drove you or caught you up in, in starting this movement in the first place and then you can bring us up to date on how it's going so far. Sure. Yeah, we originally were trying to do something to support the local restaurants in our community. They had been experiencing very rapidly declining sales. And I brought my team together and we brainstormed an idea, came up with this and then launched with 23 inaugural partners 24 hours later. So it says now, I'm, I'm quoting from the website, it says, whether you're interested in contactless delivery, curbside pickup, takeout options, meal kits and groceries, supporting healthcare workers and first responders, the Breaking Bread website gives you the inside track to the resources that exist in your corner of the country. So this is designed, your corner of the country clearly mm-hmm. indicates that this is uh, much larger in scope than the lower mainland of BC, Shelley. Yes, right away we started receiving messages from restaurants all across the country wanting to get on board and join the website as well. So we worked um, for, I don't know, weeks straight. We haven't stopped since trying to scale the website and it's now um, a fully national website that has over almost 1,300 businesses right across Canada. Well, that's wonderful. And uh, I should, I, is there a fee to join up? I, I imagine in these trying times, if there is, it'll be nominal. But uh, what's, mm-hmm. what's the story in terms of uh, becoming associated with Breaking <laughs> Bread? Yeah, there's absolutely no fee to any local independent restaurant or food service business. We have breweries and wineries as well. Okay. Um, the idea is that this has been a completely voluntary project to date. Um, but we're actually in the process of bringing on some very generous uh, corporate and community sponsors who are helping us keep this website alive. 
Okay, so let's talk about some of the ways that you have devised. Or, I mean, some of them are as plain as the nose on your face, I suppose, Shelley, but <laughs> it, it doesn't hurt to be reminded of, of things because, again, it, it's a different time and, and our thought processes perhaps aren't exactly humming along as usual. And we a little little reminder and a little push in the, in the right direction never hurts. So let's talk about some of the suggestions you have at uh, mm-hmm. breakingbreadnow.com and what We'll sh- and share them with our listeners this morning. Sure. So it can be as simple as the restaurants that are offering delivery and takeout. Um, a lot of the restaurants that are on this site, those are services that they didn't offer before. So um, those are the ones that have now pivoted and expanded their services in order to essentially stay alive. So we're tracking all of those restaurants and um, sharing that information with the public. So they can see which restaurants are offering those options. And when they change along the way, we update the website to reflect that. Oh, interesting. Now, there's a bit of a controversy here, and I don't want to necessarily get you into hospitality industry politics necessarily, mm-hmm. Shelley, but uh, there's there's been some movement on the part of some independent restaurants, again, where margins on a really good day are terribly thin, uh, and now they've just got the kitchen open because that's all they're allowed to open, and, and they're saying that if you call us directly for whatever it is you'd like to take out, uh, rather than one of those deliveries, services, we get to keep all of the money that uh, we are charging for that dish, whereas if you go through a, a delivery, a third-party delivery service, they're going to take 20 maybe 30% right off the top, and that reduces our margins and ability to survive by that much more. Mm-hmm. What do you make of all of that? And I don't want you to become embroiled in it necessarily, but you <laughs> must be aware of this, right? Oh, absolutely. That is that is absolutely true. I mean, restaurants operate on margins between 5 and 10% profit at the best of times. Right. And when these delivery companies are charging 20 to 30%, that takes all of their profits. So it just isn't a sustainable model at this point. So a lot of restaurants, yes, please do. If you want to support your restaurants, instead of going through these third-party delivery apps, please do call them direct. Some of them are offering their own delivery exactly, services. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, and, um, and there are some independent restaurants in Vancouver that have come together and they're creating their own app called From Two. So that's just getting off the ground as well. Oh, I see. So they're sort of by, they're, they're creating their own third man uh, rival, so to speak. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, to be fair, some of these third party delivery companies have responded to some of the criticism and uh, are lowering their fees, but not all of them. Okay. Uh, gift cards. I hear a lot about gift cards these days. Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned it on your website. How important are gift cards? It seems sort of almost abstract if you give a person a gift card to a restaurant where they can't go and enjoy a nice meal. Mm-hmm. I mean, these restaurants are, are fighting to save their businesses, and they have every intention of opening up again when, you know, when they're able to. Yeah. And so I, I know of one local restaurant on the Commercial Drive who told us in the first week of our website being launched and, you know, the advocacy around gift cards, they were able to pay their rent. Right. So it's putting money in their pockets today so that be, they'll be able to stay alive tomorrow. Okay, uh, and it makes perfect sense. And it, but it's not something that perhaps occurs to people necessarily, Shelley, because what the heck, it's closed. So uh, you, know, you have mm-hmm. to sort of connect dots for, for people sometimes. Digital newsletters. I noticed, for example, uh, uh, driving into work this morning, uh, listening to a couple of ads, uh, some of the uh, major food stores discontinuing their paper flyers and so on and going mm-hmm. all digital. Uh, and so, uh, and of course, it's much less expensive for food services and restaurants to be digital in the first place, that uh, flyer stuff can be pretty expensive pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's so many ways to connect with your favorite local restaurant. There's social media as well. There's digital newsletters. Sure, It's really just showing them support and telling them that you appreciate what they're doing right now and every little bit helps. And that could be something as simple as writing a positive review, couldn't it? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, those mean everything to local independent restaurants. All right. And, and another suggestion you can flesh out for us is support frontline workers. Now, we're being pretty good about, mm-hmm. uh, you know, making noise at seven o'clock every evening and acknowledging <laughs> the support of our wonderful healthcare community and the mm-hmm. hardworking people that are part of that. But we also, I think, at the same time are saying thank you to all of those other people who are part of the supply chain, who are part mm-hmm. of just keeping the lights on so the rest of us can carry on somehow. And those, they're all of those people 
people are frontline workers, aren't they? Well, exactly. And, and the hospitality community as well. Those are essential workers that are still, you know, employed and that are working to serve the public. And so, you know, a lot of the restaurants on the site, they wanted to show their appreciation. So we created a way for people to search who is offering, you know, these offers. So there's a lot of really generous offers out there, such as, you know, um, discounts or complimentary food and, Mm -hmm. you know, other businesses stepping up to support those initiatives as well. Uh, one uh, final note here, and we're grateful for your time this morning, Shelley. And we just had uh, Laura Jones from the Canadian Federation of Independent Business on, and they have a remarkable website and many, many, many thousands of, of uh, members and uh, their national organi- organization, as you are ramping up to be. And, and you know, Laura recommended uh, for small business operators to connect with their association. And you, mm-hmm. likewise, on Breaking Bread, are, are very uh, into having uh, a food and hospitality industry people connect with their own organizations too, aren't you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And we've seen, we've seen a lot of support that way. You know, the, the BC Restaurant and Food Service Association, the BC Hospitality Foundation, um, there's, there's so many that are all stepping up to do whatever they can. And whether it's a while it's a good general rule for everyone to live by the best of days, I'm quoting from your website again, Shelley. It's something we need to do now more than ever. That's be kind. Just like all of us, restaurant owners, chefs, servers, managers, suppliers, and delivery people can use a little extra love these days. So let's give them that kind word and smile and hold that door and say thanks. Remember, we're all in this together. It's the little things that count the most. That's a, a quote right from your website, mm-hmm. and it's absolutely spot on. On, Shelley. Thank you. I couldn't, yeah, I couldn't agree more. So uh, the the thrust of this, Breaking Bread, it's only been around for a month. You're receiving support and uh, positive feedback from all over Canada, uh, and it's, it's really starting to take off for you. It is, yes. And we have many plans for the future, and um, we're just doing whatever we can to support our own. And um, I'd invite everyone to check out the website at breakingbreadnow.com and follow us on Instagram at breakingbreadnow. All right, breakingbreadnow.com or on Instagram as well. The founder of Breaking Bread right here in Vancouver is Shelley MacArthur Everett. Thanks so much for being with us this morning. Thumbs up to you and your team at Breaking Bread. We wish you considerable success, Shelley. Thank you. We appreciate your support. Information here from Surrey, uh, where a Surrey-based specialty candle and soap-making operation has joined forces with the BC Dairy Association to manufacture and distribute hand sanitizers during the Vaisakhi Festival period. We were just talking with the founder of Breaking Bread about how people and hospitality industry uh, connections get made and formed, and this is a classic example, albeit a very current one. Here to tell Tell us more is the CEO of Alu Atta. A pleasure to welcome Harbinder Singh to our program this morning. G- good morning to you. Good morning, sir. It's good to have you with us. Tell us a little bit about your company, first of all, Alu Atta. Yeah, we are a local based company out in Surrey, and we produce a lot of products that's made in PC itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we make a lot of candles, bath bombs. Uh, perfumes, things like uh, cosmetic products for the the uh, eastern community, which is based out in Surrey, and uh, we, uh, uh, you know, try to make everything that we do uh, locally, and so we source everything locally. So try to make organic stuff as much as we can, and uh, <clears throat> so that's how we got to know about BC uh, Dairy Association. Now, of course, Vaisakhi, like Easter and Passover, which have just passed, uh, they turned out to be uh, celebrated in very different ways from uh, the members of those of various faiths had become accustomed to throughout their lifetime. It was a very different celebration. Many churches and temples and uh, uh, places of worship were simply closed. Uh, Others uh, remained open, but very few. Vaisakhi this year will be different, Harbinder, because the parades of our already been cancelled. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, Vaisaki and while, uh, and, and I'm, I'm fascinated, in fact, by how you, the candle maker, connected with dairy farmers to make okay. hand sanitizers. Yeah, so uh, <clears throat> the story goes, uh, uh, BC Dairy Association and Aluacha was going to be having a tent in the Khalsa Parade that happens every year. Okay. And we were supposed to give out uh, sweetmeats. Kalakand, 
and because we were using uh, the dairy milk products to make an Indian sweet. So that was the idea that, you know, we wanted to promote milk uh, as local as we can. Uh, but as you know, the parade got canceled. Yes. And so we thought, okay, what, what can we do to be part of the community? And then quickly realized that, uh, you know, with the COVID-19, uh, we want to do something that's effective. So I, I pitched the idea to them that we should make some sanitizers because I know the community will still be going to the Kutuwaras, uh, the Sikh temples, yes. or the community center. And it took us a while to you know, get that organized. And since we were not making sanitizers the same, so we need to pivot. So we need to pivot really fast. So that was how we pivoted from uh, milk-based candy that we was going to serve at the temple right. to actually providing something that's more useful, sanitizers. So you and the dairy farmers were going to share a, a, a float and uh, an, an event in the Vaisakhi uh, uh, festival. And so that was, that was the partnership that had already been established. So when you t- decided to pivot and begin manufacturing hand sanitizers, Harbinder, did you use any dairy products? I, I can't imagine that, but t- <laughs> tell us more. Yeah, so we, we, we pitched the sanitizer, but we also made uh, a milk-based soap. Oh, so, okay. Yeah, so we took BC Dairy Milk and, you know, we made soap, and we had the soap and the sanitizer. But then we quickly realized as the, uh, you know, the pandemic started progressing, putting soaps out was not an option at the time, mm-hmm. even though we could give some to, you know, if there's a proper sink and things like that but you know a lot of people were just coming in into the gudwara if you've been to a gudwara people come in and you know they go to the main hall before they go to to, to wash their hands so we thought uh let's be effective we will make the soap but how can we actually make it more effective so we decided to make sanitizers and we quickly realized uh, many of these gudwara then pivoted to supplying food to the frontline workers and uh to to the shelters and so we decided that uh, a spray will be much more effective uh, as a sanitizer. So we started uh, promoting it uh, actually just last four or five days uh, to, to a lot of institutions, to senior homes, and especially to those uh, gurdwaras that is going out of their way to you know provide food for you know families sure. that cannot yeah extending so, an effort into the community. So now when these gurdwaras are, are sending their uh, food uh, supplies to the frontline workers and so on, are they also now including the hand sanitizer that you are providing? Yes, I do. So what we have we have done is we started four or five days ago trying to you know when the basaki started because it took us about six weeks to seven weeks to just pivot the whole production. Right. Yes. And we needed to get the Health Canada approval. So of we, course. It was some time to do that, but once we got it, so we started rolling them out and uh, we created a program called It's in Your Hand just to educate the community that you know we are part of this thing. So me and uh, Aluwata and BC Dairy decided we'll spend about $100,000 distributing the sanitizer. As we started distributing, uh, some of the Gutoras has approached us that we need more sanitizers. Right. So we started, uh, you know, we were giving them a, you know, some more 60 ml bottles, but they were quickly disappearing because it's very difficult to keep track of that. So what we've been doing the last few days is putting up dispensers everywhere so the 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 communal uh, you know locations where people can still use the sanitizers and we're rolling out the smaller ones for volunteers interesting so, yeah so we just started to think like you know so so we have so many um, as you know hand sanitizers are hard to come by now yes. the public health crisis so we're trying to <clears throat> expand the the program it's in your hand and and putting another tag to it, so lend a hand so what we're trying to do is if somebody wants to buy for personal reasons and donate, they can go to our website and buy for themselves and donate. And uh, whatever we get, uh, the leftover, we can plow back to make more, more sanitizer that you know, we need to, to, to provide. And some of this thing we can give back as a cash back to uh, Khalsa Aid or PC Children Hospital Foundation. Okay. And, and all the Gurdwara. So we are very strictly following a rule that any Gurdwara or the Sikh temple that is going out and helping frontline workers, uh, the truck drivers, the single mom, sure. we want to support them. Instead of Aluata trying to do it itself, we, we want to piggy, uh, you know, make a group. I think it's, it's, it's time we all get together rather than 
having individuals all going around doing things. Uh, we should we want to try to make a community effort to see that the spirit of Vasaki is uh, is shared among the Canadian family. Interesting stuff. Well, I'm on your website, aluata.com, and yes. uh, I'm reading your article, uh, Vaisaki 2020. It's in your hands, in which you explain the background of this story and encourage your readers and website visitors uh, to purchase the uh, the hand sanitizer and to become involved in the product and getting it distributed in the community. Uh, Harbinder, thank you for joining us this morning. It's it's a laudable effort that you're involved in and very clever to, to loop in the dairy farmers who of course are your close allies in production uh, throughout the rest of the year it's a it's a terrific idea uh, and keep it up congratulations on the good work so far thank you so much Darling. thank you so much to bc dairy association and we are six we like milk so there was a great partnership excellent harbinder singh is ceo of alu atta a-l-o-o-a-t-t-a Dot com. Check it out. It's in your hands. Thanks also to John Daly and On the Beat for turning us on to this story. Justin Claude Dumont is a psychologist. He's with Earth of Light Therapeutic Services, and he's back with us from Montreal this morning. Uh, welcome back. It's good to have you with us again. Good morning, sitting. Thank you for, for being back. Uh, well, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, this uh, tamping down stuff because we seem to be a little. That's uh, not to say that there aren't many many Canadians, Justin, who are feeling uh, more than a little confined and more than a little housebound and absolutely itching to get out and do something. But we ap- appear at this point to be a little more restrained uh, in terms of vocalizing this. But we are starting to see overflowing in the streets. Let's knock this stuff off. Protest going on in america is that likely to happen in canada or is that just something that the neighbors do that's a good question and i believe you know like our our cousins from the south are sometimes a a bit more like vocal and uh, i think that the um free expression and um rights to to, uh, to express oneself freely is a bit stronger out there so i don't necessarily think that we're gonna see the, the, the like same type of protest here in Canada. Right. If, if at all, it would be like much, like in much like smaller scale. Yeah. So what, what though, uh, I, again, we, we were talking, going to talk, Brian Minter, who's a local gardening legend, uh, Justin, is going to be on with us about a half an hour. And my phones are just going to explode because people are trying to occupy their time constructively, at least most of us are. Let's talk about being constructive with all of this time on our hands. Certainly, you know, like, uh, I've had like, a discussion already with uh, individual clients um, I've get in touch with uh, through phone or video session. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like a time sometimes to um, go back like, to the basics and to really kind of like uh, go back like, to some activities that maybe that we used to enjoy as a child. Like, uh, like a lot of us, uh, because of everyday demand, sometimes I forego or I set aside like, things that, that we used to like, like, used to enjoy doing that when we were a child. And it, it could include like the things like uh, playing music, mm-hmm. listening to music, being creative through arts, through like uh, even like uh, like stopping at the uh, and taking the time to read, like, for instance. So like it's really about harnessing that uh, childhood uh, energy into uh, into like realize that this child is still is like within like within us, and when we're kids. Like we still find find ways like, to keep to, to keep ourselves busy. Like we would find ways to keep ourselves active. Like despite sometimes being even like forced to to like stay in our own room. So like, it's it's a return like, to the basics. Like to what used to work for us. Like when we were children. Mm-hmm. And it's something that we need to kind of like somewhat uh, see and uh, and um, and honor about ourselves. Interesting stuff, because some of us, in fact, many of us, Justin, are, in fact, uh, we're not alone. We are, we, are, we are staying at home. We are following mm. the guidelines. But we are uh, sharing our home with many people, including our children, from whom mm. uh, we're, we're receiving enormous satisfaction and all the rest of it, but more than a little frustration, but also from whom we might just uh, find a little advice in terms of back to the imagination one mm. more time, huh? Really well said, and like our clients also like mentioning to me that, for instance, they they've been playing like board games, which is like something that they don't like usually do anymore. Sure. And they sort of like have followed like the uh, cycles and and the rhythms and the like, suggestions made like by their children. So they they, they kind of like just uh, unfold like themselves to to like going back like to die again like to the basics. 
and to do like stuff that uh, they, they may have not had time or the like, opportunity to do like in the past because of how, how busy like life can be. Yeah, let's talk a little bit. Let's I get you to speculate. And I know you're a, a yeah. psychologist. You're not a crystal ball gazer, but everyone is indulging in a little bit of this, Justin. So why don't you and I for a couple of seconds? And it's all about sure. what will normal be like after coronavirus? Now, we're already hearing many people, including our own prime minister, talk about the new normal. So clearly, this is a game changer. Everything is sure. not going to go back to the way it once was. We're hoping that... Sure. Most of it does, but what's your take on what normal will be like? Again, like really good question, and I think that you know, like whenever I, I work with clients who have experienced the grief, uh, like we, we try to work like uh, uh, finding like that, that new normal because like, there's no way that things like can go back to to what they used to be. Anything yeah. that are are like normal or like reactive um, and nature is to go back and try to are. Go back to what used to work for us, but it will change. It will evolve, and I think that like one of the ways that it may change is that like our our economy will like require people who will want to be leaders and people like who will want to do things a slightly like, differently than, than before. Meaning that the ways of the past, like such as greed, such as like pushing forward like despite uh, our own like mental health and our own like relationships. I think that you have to be like a set aside for like a new way of, of doing tomorrow, mm-hmm. a new way of doing business, and, 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 a, and a new way of being together as well. And uh, and again, uh, uh, the uh, the handshake uh, and the hug, mm-hmm. two of the things that, you know, mm-hmm. our friend Mario Canseco and his, his research company did a survey recently, Justin, about what we miss the most. And, and, and number one on the list was human contact. Uh, all yeah. those people that we're FaceTiming with and, and doing all of those uh, virtual visits and all the rest of it, uh, we're awfully close to a lot of those people. And it's fine to, to have the virtual visits. And thank goodness for that technology. But, you know, a hug goes an awfully long way sometimes, doesn't it? It, it, it does. And, you know, like it, uh, it may be hard like, to kind of adjust to this new normal because, you know, I think that we will not know exactly what others are comfortable with. So, like, even though, like, for us, we may enjoy the handshake, enjoy the hug, enjoy like, the, the, the kiss, like, on the cheek, uh, I, I think that there will be a bit of doubt as to, like, what is, like, the boundary here or, like, what is this person comfortable with? Because like, there are people out there that will not want that back like in like in their lives. Absolutely. So, like, you know, like we may be a more uh, a more demonstrative like person and someone who wants to like, physically like feel like, like feel others. It might not necessarily be like welcome as much like by others. Like we have to be sensitive to that when things somewhat kind of get go it, back to uh, like normal life. Interesting point. And you're in Montreal. And of course, you know this better than most of us. One of the things that I was reading this in the Gazette, actually, a couple of days ago, one of the things that is most likely to disappear is the legendary two cheek kiss that you were just talking about, mm-hmm. Justin. Mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's could be passe. huh? Exactly. And I think that it would bring people to face uh, like themselves and realize that, okay, like, is this something that uh, I was doing like because I was needing it, or like, is it something that, that I used to do like out of habit? Because mm-hmm. like, sometimes, like we know, like we just uh, like we will uh, we'll, like greet each other and say like I'm like how are you good like and we'll and we'll like shake hands because uh, like, out of habit. But I think that going forward, like there will be more of a sense of what are you comfortable with, and our awareness of the other like would grow. So like, instead of being consumed by just kind of what we need and what we're used to, like we will have to be more aware of each other and what is comfortable between the two of us. Interesting point, and that's something that's not necessarily a bad thing at all, is it, in terms exactly. of the way we socialize with each other? Justin, a real pleasure <laughs> to have you back on the program. We appreciate your patience and uh, waiting uh, for the Prime Minister to finish so you could take your turn. <laughs> it's very sporting of you, and it's lovely to have you back on the show. We must do this again soon. I agree. Thanks again. Have a our, good day. Have a our good pleasure. Week. Justin Claude Dumont is a psychologist with Earth of Light Therapeutic Services and joined us this morning from Montreal. Vancouver Aquarium is a not-for-profit supported principally by visitor experience revenues. But with Vancouverites staying home and tourism discouraged, the aquarium is hemorrhaging money and will close permanently within two months 
unless it receives immediate financial support. This from OceanWise CEO Lasse Gustafsson on Wednesday. Mr. Gustafsson is with us this morning to talk a little bit more about the plight of the Vancouver Aquarium. Lasse, thank you for joining us. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure, sir. I wish it was under more auspicious circumstances. I talked about a multi-million dollar hole the Vancouver Aquarium finds itself in, Lasse. Uh, You're losing, uh, you're operating at a loss of, uh, is it over a million dollars a week? It's 3.3 million per month. So not not exactly a million, but what, what we do need to secure in order to survive as an organization is the animal care and the habitat maintenance. And that costs around a million uh, per, per month. So that's where we are today. Okay, and I know that because it has been a news item already, uh, the aquarium has laid off some of its staff. So uh, are you essentially already down to what could be best described as a skeleton crew? Yeah, we closed on the 17th of March for COVID-19. And from a health point of view, obviously the right thing to do. But from, from an aquarium point of view, it's a, it's a bit of a disaster. We have we have lost 85% of our income. And in order to survive, we have cut every possible expense, including, unfortunately, laying off temporarily uh, 350 people, having another uh, big group working part-time. And we continue to look for, for, uh, for efficiencies. The one thing we haven't uh, compromised on is, as I said, is the animal care. We have 70,000 animals in the aquarium. Yes. We can't just switch off the light, lock the doors, and go home. Right. So now, uh, in terms of the funding, uh, you put out this uh, this urgent uh, request on Wednesday, describing in some detail the financial plight of the aquarium, Lassa. From whom are you hopeful of receiving funding? So, so we've been open since 1956 without any government support for the daily operations. Uh, and we've had seen some massive support from the community. Thousands and thousands of people have been reaching out to the aquarium just the last couple of days. Sure. But obviously, without any attractions open for the public and everybody's locked in lockdown back home, uh, we've been reaching out to the government, because both on the federal and the provincial level. And we've been having constructive dialogues. I'm optimistic. We have a meeting scheduled with the provincial government tomorrow morning, and I hope we'll get some clarity about the the willingness and the capacity. I'm, I'm totally convinced that there is a willingness. Vancouver Aquarium is an icon. Yes. Uh, I'm a new Canadian. I, I knew about Vancouver Aquarium. I'm Swedish, so I also knew about the Sedins ice hockey players, but that's all I knew about Vancouver when I was living back home in Stockholm. The Sedins uh, so and the, the, the Aquarium. That's all I knew about Vancouver. I'm sorry to say, but that's it. Well, and how long have you been here now with the Aquarium, Lasse? I've been 14 months in Canada now. Okay, and uh, so the, you've had enough time to come to appreciate in that 14-month period exactly what this means to not only Metro Vancouver and especially the city of Vancouver, but to British Columbia. And to Canada, I would say. So 65% of the visitors to the aquarium are not from British Columbia. Okay. So this is this is an icon in Vancouver, obviously. It's... it's it, it's a, uh, deeply embedded in the, in the social, social life of, of Vancouver, but it's bigger than that. Uh, it's Canada's oldest and largest aquarium. It's the National Pacific Aquarium for Canada. Uh, and I think it's fair to describe it as an icon. And it, would be a, it wouldn't be great if a, if, a, if a virus could take it down. So I, I am optimistic. I think the Canadians will not let this happen. Interesting stuff. Now, you were talking about uh, uh, quite a large number of individual communications that you and your team at the aquarium have been receiving in the past few days. Are these inquiries, Lassa, or are these offers of uh, uh, people willing to contribute a small amount, whatever they're capable of doing, donation requests? It's, It's all of that. We have people on our phone lines asking how they can help. We have people on our social media accounts expressing their love for the aquarium or even for particular animals, otters would rank high on, on what people love most. Mm-hmm. But we also see in significant amounts of money. I don't have a number I can give you right now, but, but the generosity is there. But obviously we can't count on the, the, uh, the public to maintain such an expensive operation sure. uh, as the Vancouver Aquarium. 
In the past, uh, for uh, uh, many years, the uh, aquarium, and of course, as you've come to know, there was a once upon a time a zoo in Stanley Park as well. And in, in, in previous decades, those uh, received corporate support. They were, uh, I mean, I remember Mill- Macmillan Bloedel back in the day being a big corporate supporter of some of the activities in Stanley Park. Now is not a good time for uh, corporations and, and, and having deep pockets with which to be generous. Nonetheless, have you canvassed the corporate sector at all with respect to funding? We, we do have great collaboration with a number of, of private companies in, in Canada, uh, tech, the bank, BMO and, and the Royal Bank of Canada, Save on Foods and others. And they are uh, considering opportunities to support as well. Uh, but I think it's fair to say that the, our biggest and most optimistic uh, expectations are or with the government. Right. And and this is, I, I guess, it's the sense of urgency I hear in your voice, Lassa, because uh, the article in, in the Vancouver Sun a few days ago suggested that you were literally on the brink. You you maybe could make it another two months, and that would be it. It would have to close permanently. Uh, and so the, uh, I would imagine the uh, conversations with governments have included these uh, sh- sharp realities. So as a new Canadian, I've been, I've, been, uh, I've been taking a crash course in who's who in Canadian politics. I think I've been talking to four different federal ministries, the PM's office uh, in, in Ottawa. I've been, right. I've been talking to a number of different ministries in Victoria. The will is there. Uh, obviously, government have many things to worry about. Aquarium may not be top of the list. Sure. And we totally understand that. But we hope we get some clarity tomorrow. So your meeting tomorrow, then, will be with the provincial government or will be a combination of representatives from both Victoria and Ottawa? The meeting tomorrow is with the provincial government. Okay. And is it just an opportunity to sit down with a senior official of the government and uh, lay out the case for uh, funding? We have been providing them with uh, all kinds of information that they've been asking for. And I hope that tomorrow we will hear some uh, some news about what they are planning and at what kind of scale they are willing to support and capable of support the aquarium. Uh, f- final question to you, Mr. Gustafson, and we're grateful for your time this morning. You're, we are, as you said already, we're the, the National Aquarium uh, for the Pacific Region mm-hmm. of Canada, no question. There are, however, other mar- mar- marine and maritime facilities across the country. Are they in the same kind of tough shape as the Vancouver Aquarium? So there are, there are the, the only other really big aquarium in Canada is in Toronto. It's, it's uh, run as a private for-profit company, so slightly different. But there's not a single aquarium in North America open to the public today. Right. So, so we're all struggling. Uh, some have more money in the bank than we do. We, we do have a cash flow that comes to an end in mid-June. So, so for us, the crisis is very urgent. All right. And um, uh, will you be able to make an announcement uh, after speaking with the provincial government tomorrow in order to be able to satisfy those many uh, Vancouverites who are willing to uh, pony up a few dollars and help uh, contribute to the cause once they understand that there's a package coming? We, we love to engage with our audience and we, we do have a million visitors in a normal year. And we've been very transparent uh, uh, with our situation simply because we think our the community in Vancouver and BC deserves uh, to know where we are. And, and this response, as I said, has been, has been amazing. Quite moving to see uh, an, an aquarium having such massive support from the public. No question about that. Lasse Gustafsson, uh, the best of luck with your meeting tomorrow, and we look forward to hearing about the outcome. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you. Our next guest is Vancouver gardening legend, Brian Minter. Brian, welcome to the program. We were, we were just trying to figure out last time you and I talked on the radio. It's so far ago, I don't even want to go back that far. It's great to have you with us in, on this April weekend in 2020. Well, Sterling, yes, it, it, things actually were quite different back then. <laughs> None of us kind of know what direction anything is going in, but... Uh, you, you did bring up a very good point. Uh, any Nature continues on no matter what. And uh, I, I think we're finding out uh, over the past few years, anything to do with plants and trees um, has such a, an amazing effect on human beings. The Japanese scientists, for example, uh, and the World Health Organization have both come to the conclusion that uh, being around trees and, and plants has a way of uh, affecting our immune system. Plants give out to trees in particular 
uh, give out uh, uh, sort of an, a photo um, material that actually affects our immune system. Mm. Uh, and uh, it is uh, making a huge difference in terms of the amount of white blood cells that are produced. So, you know, uh, going for a walk in a forest uh, is, is one of the great things we could do. But more than that, um, having plants in and around uh, the relieving of, of stress, um, the fact that, that that whole sense of nurturing, uh, it has an amazing effect on us, and, and we're beginning to, to learn that. But the folks starting, uh, and you're right, who are new to gardening, uh, discovering, you know, how to make mistakes easily. And um, there's, a, there's a couple of things that are going on. Uh, number one, there's this absolute panic right now. We're having wonderful weather, and folks think that, well, even though it's April, we should everything could go in. That's right. The demand for seeds and tomato plants is off the chart. Nurseries are uh, just overwhelmed, aren't they, Brian? They, they are. Uh, they've got fewer people to serve folks who are trying to, I think, all the, the really good garden stores are, are really watching the social distancing. Absolutely. You bet. So it's, ma- it's making, uh, making it a challenge. But uh, nevertheless, uh, it is the one go-to thing, I think, in a world where we can grow things. And particularly, it's growing our own food right now that is incredibly important uh, for so many people. That little bit of independence, I can, you know, grow something that I can produce. I know what's going into it in terms of organics. And, um, you know, it, it gives you a sense of independence that I think that we don't get anywhere else. So it's it's a wonderful thing. But... There's a lot of things out there that have changed. Yeah, well, Brian, one of the things you just mentioned already is the fact that we have been a little spoiled lately. Uh, you know, you, you look at the prime minister giving his uh, address the other a couple of mornings ago, and he's got a scarf on, and it's snowing, and we're going, really? Is this some kind of setup? But no, we've just had a, a deluxe past couple of weeks to the point we where, to, to your point, that uh, many of us are, are starting to go, oh, my gosh, have we, have we missed things here? But uh, mm-hmm. I guess we're not too late because it still gets pretty cold at night. The clearer the skies and the warmer the temperatures in the daytime at this time of year generally means the colder the temperatures overnight. So what is safe to put in now? Um, this is this is a really good point. And I have a, a, a rule that I've always followed all my life is when we get consistent daytime temperatures of about 10 degrees Celsius, all the cool loving things that uh, will take a bit of cold and maybe a touch of frost. Okay. You're talking about your onions and all your cabbage, cauliflower, broccoli, your, your lettuce varieties, uh, Swiss chard, uh, even early potatoes. Uh, all those things, uh, uh, peas, for example, too, and broad beans for folks who love them. Uh, those are the ones that uh, can go in now. And if you get frost, uh, a little bit of night protection would be okay. But uh, those are the early ones that uh, we could uh, actually do. I wanted to point out one thing here. Talking to the um, uh, managers of some of the major seed companies in our country, uh, there, there's demand for seeds is four and five times what it uh, ever would be in the past. And uh, there's this panic of, of, you know, like toilet paper, we're going to run out of seeds. Mm-hmm. He assured me that they're not. There, there is adequate supply the pressure of getting so much at once and trying to deal with that uh, is is slowing things down. But he assured me the supply is there. And the other thing, ironically, uh, in terms of packaging, uh, you, you know, the packages aren't made. They don't have that many. They have to redo them. So you may get a plain Jane package. Sure. Maybe some of your favorite varieties of seeds uh, are out there. Uh, but um, it will be a little bit longer coming until you get them back again. Uh, but for the most part, we're going to be okay. And here's the, the big one. And also, and they're all pointing out, you know, a lot of wonderful BC growers grow transplants. And when you put in transplants of lettuce or, you know, cabbage, cauliflower, or broccoli, the whole list, you save about four weeks of time. That's right. So, Just using the little bedding plants that you buy at the nursery, abs- right? Absolutely. So those can all go in right now, and they are widely available, and the growers are ramping up production uh, the other thing, though, in terms of to finish your question, when we get 10 degree nighttime temperatures and serving, that's really about the latter part of May. And um, once we get there, then our heat lovers, all our wonderful tomatoes and peppers and, you know, uh, all the things we love in terms of heat cucumbers and squash and th- those types of things. That's when they can go in. Interesting. But everybody's buying them now, trying to put them in their house not good growing conditions, uh, setting ourselves up for failure. So hold off, and I know for sure that the growers have adequate supply of all those types of things, so uh, there really shouldn't be any panic. The, the biggest issue right now 
is this sense, particularly of new gardeners, thinking that you're right, we have wonderful weather, uh, they can go in right now, when in fact there's adequate time. Traditionally across our country, uh, long weekend in May is the beginning of the garden season. I was and just going to be- say that, Brian. I was raised in Ontario, and the 24th <laughs> of May weekend, that's the weekend, A, you either went up north and opened up the cottage, or you put stuff in the in the garden. That was the exactly. official kickoff weekend. We're just lucky <laughs> in this part of the country. We do have a jump on the rest of Canada, but not for every type of plant. That's exactly right, and, and that's the thinking. But uh, I think the biggest issue is to assure folks that uh, there is going to be uh, whatever you want, uh, maybe the few exceptions that you have to switch varieties, is going to be available. That's and good the news. growers are really ramping up production of food production of uh, all vegetables. So I, I think we're going to be just fine. You say in this article about uh, container growing, size matters. Explain, if you will, please. Yeah, certainly. That's an extremely important issue. Uh, when we get our extremely hot weather, uh, if you have a smaller container, particularly if you're away for part of the day, uh, things dry out so quickly. Yep. Containers really, for the most part, need that hot sun to perform well, uh, all your sun-loving uh, plants. And uh, in a small container, it just doesn't have the critical mass of soil. So things, you're watering over frequently, you're leaching all the goodness out of the soil. So the larger uh, container, uh, and for folks on balconies and high apartments, uh, weight is, a, is an issue. Yep. Today we have so many lightweight soil mixes that uh, you really don't have to worry too much about that. And uh, so I would say uh, the larger, the better. And there's a couple of things about containers we always assume that, well, it's the size of the container, that's all I can grow. Mm-hmm. Uh, the new trick, uh, which many folks are using, Sterling, is to put a high trellis, secure it in your container. So, in other words, uh, anything that's climbing, as in your beans or as you're, you're climbing peas or cucumbers, uh, you run them up the trellis to double and triple the amount of area in which you can grow things. So I would say, honestly, 16 to 18 inches uh, in terms of diameter, um, uh, you know, go up from there uh, is probably the best way to be able to, uh, you know, get the amount of volume you need for soil so they don't dry out so quickly. And the other thing, uh, buying a good soil mix, a professional mix, uh, one mistake a lot of folks make is uh, getting, you know, a nice container, everything looks good, and then they put a cheap or poor soil, like a topsoil, for example, uh, everything begins to go backwards. Get ah. a professional quality soil, uh, it pays dividends, it can be recycled and used over again, but that quality soil, a large container, uh, and mixing in organic matter, uh, as in you can pick up mushroom compost and those types of things, mm-hmm. uh, sea soil, add that in good for moisture retention, but it gets the organics back into your container that really make a difference. So size does matter. The volume of soil matters. But being creative and innovative and putting trellising uh, up uh, to give you far more uh, ability to grow far more things uh, in that container. Yeah, just expand the size of the, of the potential crop. Does it, mm-hmm. matter, does it matter, Brian, whether the pot or container that you're growing your stuff in, what it's made of? I know you talked about weight issues in certain uh, obviously uh, environments, but does it matter whether it's made out of a ceramic or plastic or aluminum or does, does any of that matter? It really doesn't. No. The most important issue is that you have good drainage on the bottom. Right. Uh, when we water or when someone you're away for a few days, someone else waters, the tendency is to overwater. Or if we get a lot of rain all of a sudden, uh, we have a lot of moisture. You want to make sure that that moisture gets away quickly. So no matter what type of container you use, it's great. Uh, just make sure it has a drainage. And Sterling, here's something. I attended a... Um, I was part of a, a growing seminar once, and uh, one of the folks from UBC uh, said, please don't, uh, for larger containers, fill it with styrofoam chips or, or rocks and that type of thing. He said it changes the growing dynamic uh, of your soils. Put as much soil right to the bottom. Oh. Roots will find their way down. And uh, if you're in an issue where you have a container in a very windy situation, yes, you do have to put some weight like stones in the bottom right. for stability. But other than that, uh, please avoid that and use your soils. Oh, that's interesting because that, that's got, maybe it's an old wives' tale. I'm not sure, but it, it used to be you had to sort of put a layer of little rocks across the bottom of the, uh, of the container, and then you put your soil. And I, thought, I, I always thought that was kind of a drainage thing, Brian. Yeah. Uh, to, to some degree, uh, when you do have a drain hole in the bottom, 
yes, we do put a stone or a crockery piece uh, that's broken over top, and that's the reason that prevents the soil from running onto your patio. Okay. Uh, that's the reason we do that. Uh, but uh, other than that, uh, no. And I, it was news to me. I, I learned a lot, a lot from this gentleman from ABC, and uh, they'd done a lot of research on this. So it, it's a, another issue that we never think of, but it's really important. Absolutely. Now, how often uh, typically does a garden, whether it's a fixed-in garden that you have in your backyard or whether it's a container garden on your patio or balcony, how frequently do those growing uh, plants need to be watered? Yeah. Okay. You've asked the most difficult question of all. I was saving it for last. (laughs) This is a tough one. It depends on so many factors. Okay. And, and, and here's the biggest issue is uh, you do want to plant, prevent your plants from getting into stress. Uh, once a plant gets into stress, it, it's more susceptible to disease and insects and so on. Uh, kind of funny, like human bodies, the same thing. Sure. Uh, but, uh, but seriously, um, the thing is to prevent them from wilting. And if you're going to make a mistake, always water too little rather than watering too much. Oh, when okay. too much water sits and stays in your soils, uh, it's like uh, putting your head underwater. You can't breathe uh, because it's a natural process of water going in, pushing all the oxygen through the pot, uh, and then the oxygen coming back as it dries out on top. If you keep it wet and it stays wet all the time, there's no oxygen. Plants do struggle, and uh, all of a sudden root rot uh, begins to happen. So the, the, the issue is we give things a, a really good drink when you water Water thoroughly and not the coldest water. If you can take the, you know, a moderate temperature water is always better. But water thoroughly and with well-drained professional soils, the water will flow through nicely. And uh, then that's perfectly okay. If it's hot in the summertime, you may have to do that two or three times a day. Mm -hmm. The thing is to prevent the water from, from, uh, you know, just accumulating and staying in there. And one indicator I always look if you're worried about uh, on a very hot day, if you're watering too little, uh, Sterling, you'll see a little rim of air form on the soil. The soil will shrink, and all around the inside of the pot, you'll see this gap of air. Oh. You know then that they, you've got it too dry. Interesting. So good good drink, let them dry, is the natural process. And uh, you, But you learn that very quickly. Observation is the most important thing in the world. Look and see uh, how the plants are performing, if it's a problem. And the biggest mistake a lot of us make is not understanding that, um, yeah, I put compost in or I put organic matter in. Uh, The plants don't seem to be growing. Uh, That's all wonderful. You're putting organic matter back in the soil, but you're not putting food in the soil. And uh, I really, um, there's organic fertilizers today. Our folks are organic out there. The the Gaia green uh, organic material is great. But I think for a lot of us who have busy lives, um, putting timed release fertilizer, something like a triple 14, 14, 14, you put it on once, you're good for the entire summer. Fantastic. And, uh, and every time you water, every time it rains, you're automatically feeding. So the plants are getting everything they, uh, they really need. So really, that, that's about it, other than just watching and learning. And uh, as things uh, grow, um, the plants are the best teacher. They really are. Brian Minter, thank you for this. Wonderful to get you back on the radio and spend some time with you again. What a treat and excellent advice for a Sunday morning, sir. We must do this again. Thank you so much, Brian. Thank you, Sterling. Stay well. Uh, Thanks to Julie Wong and Andrew Ferreira for another smooth weekend ride. I'm Sterling Fox. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.